0: Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. All right, well, so sometimes when I do these intros here, I talk about productivity and things that have been working for me and, you know, just general progress that I have been making on things, strategies have been working well. What I will say for this one is that my guest today has cost me an entire morning of productivity. Um... We uh, in this episode we get into talking about magic, which can be a very deep rad- rabbit hole for me. Uh, I find it very interesting in a sort of psychological perspective, and, and we talk a little bit about that. But uh, he mentioned a magician, Eric Tate, T A I T, and a show on which he appeared, Penn and Teller's "Fool Us," in which you have Penn and Teller, two of the most venerable magicians of all time. A bring out these acts, and if they can't figure out how uh, the act is done, then, uh, you know, they win the show, and, you know, they figure out most acts. But anyway, I won't say whether or not um, uh, Andy's friend was able to successfully fool Penn & Teller, but what I will say is that after watching that video, I was very curious to figure out who had, in fact, fooled them. And so I've spent the last hour or so watching these 10-minute acts where these incredible sleights of hand take place, and uh, Penn and Teller go on to, you know, rhapsodize about how incredible and, and profound and, and, and everything. And it's been a very enjoyable morning. have not gotten very much done. But uh, at any way, speaking of getting things done, my guest today, Andy Luttrell, gets an awful lot done. I, I first sort of, you know, came to uh, become familiar with him through his podcast, Opinion Science. Um, there's definitely a decent amount of overlap between the kinds of people that we like to have on and, and, and talk to and, and all that sort of stuff. Though of course, you know his podcast is about his area of expertise, and my podcast is about whatever my podcast is about. And um, then I started to realize just how deep the Andy Latrell content universe goes. And when I was preparing for this, um, you know, it just kept unraveling in layers and layers of things that I didn't uh, expect to find. And it's, uh, you know, goes from his YouTube channel to uh, the, the relatively large number of um, uh, online courses that he's put together, which are very well attended as far as I can tell. And all of this in addition to being a professor at Ball State University. So uh, the guy's really cool. He's, he's, he uh, makes really fantastic content, very well put together, very impressive. And so I was just fascinated to talk to him about his interests, how he manages to do all that stuff while also having a real academic job. And, you know, how he sort of architected his his way through creating all that and and what that looked like for him. And so it was fascinating to talk, you know, different aspects of uh, trade in terms of podcast It was very fascinating to hear about his background as a magician, and performer, and how that has influenced the way he's gone about doing his work as an academic and broadcaster and and, and YouTuber and everything like that. So he's just a fun guy to talk to, lots of interesting stuff to say, and um, has has, excellent notes on the craft and science and and all that stuff. So it was a fun conversation, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with everyone. Without any further ado, here is Andy Latrell. So the, the first question I usually like to ask people is, is where did you
1: grow up Sure so I, I I've done a little bit of a binge on your show and so I have some sense of where this is going so I, <laughs> I was prepared I was like how am I gonna how should I talk about where I grew up mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh so i I grew up in Mount Prospect, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago and was there I mean my parents still live in that house and that is. Sort of a a, a nice place to grow up and be sort of (laughs) insulated from the world in some ways, but also have access to a bunch of cool resources. Um, And yeah, was in the outskirts of Chicago my whole upbringing and haven't really, except for like uh, an ill-conceived bout of art school in Savannah, Georgia for two quarters (laughs) my freshman year, I've pretty much stayed in the Midwest ever since. That's super cool. What were you
0: doing? What were you doing in art school? What were you, what were you attempting to do?
1: (laughs) Yeah, my, I thought I was going to do animation. That was my big passion. Like in high school, I really got into, you know, it was pre-YouTube and I remember being really interested in like independent animation that was happening and I, you'd have to like sit there and download a video file on some guy's website of like his student animation film. (laughs) and i just was super into that and was always like a big pixar fan um and just got into like the tech of it and the art of it and the the history of animation like i went <laughs> i went all the way um and savannah had a an animation program this is the savannah college of art and design and that's what i thought i was gonna do and i got there and it was this sort of like weird neverlandy place where no one was really doing anything and it was nice out all the time (laughs) and you're just sort of hanging out uh you'd like do art projects and there was like no class on friday so that you can do your studio work and it was just this weird i I like i don't think i was quite ready for that level of freedom like there's a certain amount of freedom you get when you go to college but this was just kind of like hey i don't know you guys want to just like your homework is to choose some colors. <laughs> All right. That leaves a lot of extra time this weekend, I guess. <laughs> um, but that's what I wanted to do was animation. But I, I pretty quickly realized that the lifestyle of that did not fit with me. Um, Cause like the, the reality of doing animation is you'll work like a week, a full, like a full work week on like seven seconds of footage. And I was like, um, <laughs> I I don't know if that's how I can do things. And I really did miss, like, I, I was fairly good in, in school, like in high school. And I was sort of missing that academic piece of the puzzle. Um, and I found myself like really itching for that. And so after a couple quarters of art school, I was like, you know what? I still enjoy this art form. I still will engage with this world, but, um, I, I don't think this is the long haul for me.
0: So going deep in animation, was that was that a specific interest as in like that was your thing, or was that part of a larger constellation of oh, I've got lots of other uh kind of like things that I'm that I'm working on? Or was that or was that the thing that, that spoke to you at that time?
1: Um by things that I'm working on, what do you mean exactly? I guess
0: other interests, like you know, music, yeah. stuff you like to do in Chicago, going around like whatever whatever it was, you know?
1: Sure. Yeah, the, the I, I think the defining hobby of my upbringing was uh, I was a magician for a lot. Was that was like my that was my thing. Uh, like from the time I was real hmm. little, you know, I think I was ten years old. I made my first bit of money doing a birthday party, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Um, so that I think sort of that was the first you know it's hard to trace the causal arrow right is this just sort of a proclivity that i've always had is this sort of performancey presentation thing or was this like an experience that made me pursue those things but nevertheless i think you can trace my interest in presenting and performing way back to that and in some ways that sort of makes animation a weird art form that i wanted to do because that's very much like oh i'm gonna perform but alone in a dark room <laughs> and the performance you won't see until much later. And and I think maybe that's where the disconnect was for me, that there wasn't that immediacy where I was like, the product is a performance and it's an artistic expression, but the process of doing it is not, I, it, it doesn't the same thing. Um,
0: That's really interesting. And that's, I kind of, I kind of uh, vibe with that because I kind of, so I was I was a musician when I was young. I wanted to be a jazz singer. Before I wanted to be a cognitive mm-hmm. scientist, I wanted to be a jazz singer. And you know, did I did that throughout high school and, and early college. and it was definitely part of the performance acts aspect that drew me in. And I kind of feel like I've been trying to recreate the same ability to have that performance feeling uh in whatever i've been doing and pursuing throughout my professional development trying to like find some sort of uh you know version of that that i can viably do in 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 my way with the things that i'm trying to to create and that sort of thing so i definitely yeah
1: and academia affords some of that which is cool i think that's why i just feel very at home in this world is there's a piece of the puzzle that is the science of it right and that's the part that i am super into and and was missing when i was in art school like that like real dedication to some academic rigor. But it also, there are these opportunities to talk to the public, give talks, give talks at conferences, present at podcasts, teach, right? All of that stuff is part of this job that draws upon those things that I feel like either I have some proclivity for, or at least I just enjoy doing.
0: So I have to take this this tangent, um, (laughs) but do you have favorite magicians still? Um oh. because I am absolutely obsessed with david blaine, uh which oh, i know is the most basic bitch answer you could give for uh <laughs> it doesn't it hardly even i'm sure like a real musician a m- magician wouldn't even count that as uh but uh, uh i'm i'm curious who still appeals to you uh uh having having some background in that
1: mm-hmm. uh, so i think i think maybe your assessment of choosing david blaine is correct however <laughs> i do think that that he deserves a lot of credit for really bringing magic into the mainstream in a way that was completely different from the version of it that had been mainstream, right? Like, you're Doug Hennings and you're, like, big theatrical productions that were on TV, and David Blaine is like, I'm just gonna, like, walk around New York and do some pretty straightforward stuff, and I'm gonna be a superstar. (laughs) Um, So I I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, I don't know that he's really doing a lot these days um, i I, may, I don't know I, i'm not really sort of in that world as much um, don't even bait think, me into
0: trying to, yeah. <laughs> to tell you what david blaine's been up to um, do you know well, on, have you followed well, his well so on, on the on the, the the front that you just described uh so i have this whole theory about how the uh, way that david blaine revolutionized magic is very similar to a development um, maybe 10 years earlier in developmental psychology. uh, Hmm. Where what David Blaine did, like like you were describing, what magic was before David Blaine, was it was about the presentation on stage. So you have the magician, she does something, and then there's ta-da, there's the prestidigitation flourish. And then that's uh, what happens. And then the insight is, no, 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 okay. So what's interesting about magic is not what the magician's doing, it's what the audience's reaction to it is. And so that's the point of being on the street of New York, uh, is that now, instead of, okay, yeah, whatever David Blaine's up to, that's fine, but let's look at this person who just saw him do this effect, whatever it was, and is now going ape apeshit. Um, and if you look at uh, how developmental psychology uh, changed uh, from Piaget onward, so Piaget was like, oh, well, you know, here's all my theories about... Um, uh, uh you know, the way infants uh, perceive their world and that sort of stuff. The early true experimental developmental psycholo- uh, psychology uh, uh, paradigms, they basically had this same idea as what uh, David Blaine was doing with his camera, which is that if we look at mm. people's reactions, if we look at infants' reactions to what's happening, um, then that's actually what's interesting here and tells us about these kind of, uh, you know, things. It's not about the person on stage and what's happened there. It's about the reaction to it. And if we follow that, that's where the interesting things, where we learn about people's minds and the way they're expecting reality to work uh, comes in. Um None of that has to do with fucking
1: anything. Uh, no, but... <laughs> no but I, I, I never thought about that. So I think your take on the David Blaine revolution is right on because I mean, I've heard plenty of people make the same sort of claim. I obviously in some didn't ways, make it's. It yeah. uh, what's
0: that? I obviously didn't make that up myself. Uh, like okay. People who okay. know things about I mean, magic, uh, like I, I lifted that from them. But yeah.
1: Okay. But in some ways, it's it's slightly different because I think the problem of magic. Is the problem of magic on TV. Like that's the thing that David Blaine changed. In that it's not like if if you were seeing this live, you might not actually need to be looking at the people around you, right? You'd go like, Wow, I'm seeing this. But when there's this like medium of TV in the way, you go like, Well, I I can't really buy that I'm getting the same experience unless I can live vicariously through this person who is there, and I can see, like, oh, if I was there, I'd actually also still be impressed by this, right? Whereas when it's sort of the theatrical thing, you can just be like, Oh, well, I don't really know <laughs> how much of this is real or how I just am not engaged with it. Um, but open question whether that distinction is still there when it's a live experience, right? Is people's live experience different when they're in a theater versus, like, I'm in a small group of people and this guy is doing something incredible?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, that that makes a lot of sense uh so but i i do want to know are there Mm. people whose work you follow that i should go check out uh, after this Mm. to um uh see what's up in the the world of magic these days
1: sure i I will say so one i have a friend uh here in columbus who we did stand up i I did stand up comedy throughout graduate school and he was he sort of came into columbus at that time and he sort of is a magician who does stand up and so obviously we (laughs) connected um and he recently qualified for this like grand, it's like the Olympics of magic, <laughs> um, and his name is Eric Tate. Um, he was on the Penn and Teller Foolish show a few years ago, um, and he's just like a just a very solid like knucklebuster card magic guy um, who's just doing amazing things. So uh, shout out to to my buddy Eric on that one. Um, but the person who's probably sort of check out a bowl that I that really sort of changed my approach. To magic and also kind of nudged me to pursue psychology in a weird way. Um, is Darren Brown in in your neck of the woods? So I don't know if you've encountered uh, him in in your UK exploits.
0: Yeah, his um thing on Netflix is the push.
1: Um, uh, right. That's true. Yeah. yeah,
0: I think I I I, uh, uh, I I saw a teaser for that recently. It's on my list.
1: Yeah, yeah. He so he is like an earliest days of of his work was very much just like the mind reading element of magic right and he presented it as this very like psychological display right so like by understanding people so well i'm able to like know what you're thinking or suggest things to you and get you to make certain choices um and his live shows are incredible so if you can find like his live shows recorded there are a handful of them that that were um played on in the uk on tv um and i got to go see one of them when i was in london once so that was like the i went to london specifically to see um him present this show um and he's just very he's just such a compelling performer and the work that he does is super interesting and thought-provoking um and he really he presents it in a way that is more than just like look at some cool stuff but just like maybe this should make you rethink your place in the world and, and how we think of those things. Um, so he, he, for I don't know how long he's been at this, but he's made a very nice career for himself, um, and I think it's he does very cool stuff.
0: Okay, 100%. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely going to go. Uh, he's on my radar, but now I need to like app, actually go in there mm-hmm. and, and check. that. That's awesome. Uh, but you mentioned that there was a kind of a way in which he helped you consolidate your interest in in psychology. Can you can you draw the link between that, or like can you yeah can you can you draw it out a little bit how you, how you went from from there to to you know your more formal pursuit in psychology? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so it, it kind of takes us back to art school again, which is that this was sort of the time at which I discovered this guy, and I, I was very active in in magic stuff in high school, and so. Toward the end of high school, I, I started seeing this guy's stuff and thinking about this sort of like psychology presentation of magic and just sort of not having any real investment in psychology, just thinking it was a intriguing way to present these mysteries <laughs> to people. Um, and then when I found myself being a little frustrated in art school and not kind of getting what I wanted out of it, I still was really into this sort of world of psychology meets illusion. Um, which turned me on to ideas about... There's kind of a a cool... You can sort of trace a lot of the skeptic movement to magicians over time, right? Because these are folks who are in this position of being like, I understand all the tricks of the trade. And I also am seeing people use them to create beliefs that I know are not true, right? Because they're doing the same junk that I'm doing. (laughs) Um, And sort of all that together made me start to think about like, well, maybe... My interest is in that world of like belief and certainty and stuff that might not necessarily be the most true and changing people's minds about things. Um, And so when I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be at art school anymore. What the heck do I want to do? It's sort of in a flash. I was like, well, all that stuff is really interesting. And and so I ended up transferring to uh, Eastern Illinois University and did three years there to do a, a BA in psychology. Um, thinking at first I was going to be like a high school psychology teacher because I liked my high school psychology class. Um, but I eventually realized like, no, I think I like the psychology and how it, where it comes from more than I do the idea of like teaching intro to psychology to high school students for the rest of my life. Um, and I thought, well, I'll give, I'll do an honors thesis. And then that kind of really got the, the bug in my ear to, pursue research more and so applied to grad school and ended up at ohio state so it really that that was kind of the turning point early on that made me go like oh actually i am really interested in in all these sorts of questions and and it's still kind of you can see little remnants of it even in the work that i'm doing now no and so when you got to graduate school
0: how much of your focus was on the research, um, like what you were supposed to be doing, uh, and how much uh, did it occur to you to do the kind of stuff that you've you've you've, you've built up over the years in your podcast and your your videos and that sort of stuff? Did you start that in graduate school, or was that was that postgraduate school?
1: It started in grad school, but relatively late. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first couple of years I was just so <laughs> fish out of water and being like. Uh, what are all these people talking about? And, and I just remember, you know, sitting in on like a full year's worth of brown bag talks being like, I'm not getting anything out of this. <laughs> I have an abs- everyone else seems to be asking questions like they know what what is happening. Um, but I don't think I quite do. Um, so it took me, I think, a little while to get my bearings there. To sort of find a research groove that was working for me, that took I think some time too. Was there um, was
0: there anything so in that period, going from uh, basically feeling like a fish out of water to having a, a little bit of traction, a little bit of comfortability, was there something in particular that you did, or uh, uh, you know, just reading, climatizing that sort of stuff? Um, was was there anything in particular that stands out?
1: Yeah, I think it was. It was just sticking with it and i think it's a lot like learning a language when you don't have like you've got like some formal tools to learn a language right like i can take a class i can do exercises right that's what your coursework early in grad school is it's like hey here's like the dictionary uh the translation dictionary here's sort of like some exercises to implement these give you practice using this language <laughs> But then you just have a ton of exposure, right? Like at Ohio State, we had two brown bags every week and a colloquium series. That would be like every third Thursday, more or less, plus lab meetings, plus lab meetings of maybe labs that you're uh, sort of tangentially affiliated with. And you're in a lab with five other people who all are speaking that language constantly. Um, And so I do think there's a real um, benefit to just being like, I have to hear the language over and over and over again, and then eventually, it just sort of clicks into place. is 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 my experience of it. Um, and in some ways, it's it makes me a little disheartened about the last couple of years about how there hasn't been that kind of like super. You're embedded socially in this world. I think it's probably been harder for new students to develop that kind of language um, when everything's remote and you're not just constantly like. Overhearing people talk about their research in the background while you're desperately trying to figure out how to get the computer to analyze your data. <laughs> um, but but that, that was my experience, that it sort of clicked into place over time. And then you sort of reach a point where you can go like, oh, I, I can now participate in this more. Um, and then it takes off from there.
0: Yeah. And then so, right. Okay. So then once you started to get uh, your feet under you, did you have a... Vision for building, like you know, uh, uh, like i was saying, into the stuff that you did, was it was it stuff that you just sort of pieced together, or like what's how did how did that all start to start to take shape uh, alongside your your research career?
1: Yeah, I I actually can't remember now, like what the genesis was of trying to do more public engagement work. I think it was always of interest, right? I I always enjoyed reading popular press books in psychology, right? That sort of in in undergrad is kind of what pushed me to understand more about like the field itself of cognitive and social psych. Um, And yeah, I don't really know what it was, but I just I thought, well, I guess I'll (laughs) give it a whirl. And uh, I think an opportunity came to sort of, there was like a website where you could develop like an online video course on something. And I was like, well, I don't know, like I've been teaching social psych for a couple of years as a grad student. And so like, what would it look like to try to do that outside of an academic environment and leverage technology to make it accessible and interesting to people? And I think as soon as I started making those, it really was just, fun. It's just a fun challenge to be. The tech part of it, I just enjoyed. Um, The presentation part of it, I enjoyed, right? I'm sort of returning to some roots (laughs) there, Um, right? Because the animation interest was all about like using technology to express ideas. Performance was all about like using your voice to express ideas. And now here in this online environment, it was like, oh, well, I happen to have this like limited knowledge of social psychology, but more than the average person. And I'm interested in using the tools and skills that I've developed to express those things. And then once that started getting rolling, then I thought, well, well, YouTube is sort of this, like, you know, reaches the whole world. Uh, what would that look like to try to do that? And it really took a while before I got into podcasting, even though that was always something I was interested in. Um, podcasts have been a part of my life for a long time. And finally, I was like, well, this is this is the thing. And I kind of feel like, I don't know, this feels sort of the most natural fit to me is is the podcasting space, for whatever reason. Um, I've certainly sustained it maybe a little more than I have some of the other projects.
0: Yeah, so I wanna break down the Andy Latrell universe kinda of like one piece at a time. Cause that mm-hmm. was like that was something that I was I was quite shocked when I was researching <laughs> your work uh in preparation for this interview. Cause like I know the podcast and I was like, okay, I don't know, this guy this guy seems pretty cool. It's like let's talk to him, let's let's uh let's see what he's about. And then I kept like digging through the archives <laughs> of stuff. Um and I was like, oh my god, the like level the like the quantity and quality of, of content that you've put out through the years is i i I'd, I'd like—I'm hard pressed to think of anyone else. Uh, certainly, you know, someone who's a fucking professor uh, <laughs> that that has done that. So I want—I want to sort of go through. So it sounds like the first—the first thing that you tried your hand at were your online courses, which you have, um, you know, I think what was it? was it originally through Udemy, and then mm-hmm. um, uh, more recently through Knowable um if that if that sounds right um and uh it looks like that, it a lot of people have taken your your courses on there there are like thousands and thousands of of reviews which i imagine is a a subset of the number of people who have have taken the course
1: yeah it shocks me that, (laughs) that 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 was able to reach such an audience and i think a lot of it is i just sort of hit at the right time okay where that website was sort of new um and it just like As luck would have it, it's gained traction. People drew attention to it. And the cool thing is it's a super global audience, right? So a lot, a lot, a lot of those people are outside of the United States, um, which is like an incredible, like how often does someone get to say like, oh, I've been able to reach people truly globally um, about this science that I find so compelling. Um, So yeah, and there was really no strong psychology content on that website when Mm. I got into it. And I think it just sort of worked out that, like, as that service grew, um, and now they're, like, in all these companies all over the place. So, like, businesses will use it, this service as their training. So, like, stuff I do on persuasion, people are getting, like, credit at their job <laughs> for for learning about persuasion with me, which is super cool. Um, and so a, as that grew and if people were looking for the kind of stuff that I was putting out there, it, it was my stuff that was showing up. Um, so I think that was... And then it's just been a snowball. Like, I don't really touch, I haven't really touched that stuff since I made it in late grad school and, like, maybe my first year post-PhD. But it, like, continues to attract new attention. And I hear from people constantly who've, they like, hey, I took your class on this and thanks so much. And I was like, wow. (laughs) Had no idea. Had no idea that was in the future.
0: That's really cool. And uh, so it definitely sounds like, okay, part of uh, why that worked as well as it did was the timing. Which is great. That's that's awesome. But I'm curious. Like, what is your suspicion for other? Is that a is that a model that other academics could follow now? Now that there are other, obviously, online courses have been around. You know, sort of MOOCs, whatever. Um, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. Could if if you. Picked a topic that was specific, and um, you know, you could sort of like, okay, well, it's not a good class yet on this, and I could kind of imagine people wanting mm. to learn about this. Uh, that seems like a pretty good intersection of like, okay, well, I have a PhD academic background, I'm interested in doing something to reach a little larger audience, on and uh, you know, potentially another uh, monetary stream or something like that. Do you think that's like a viable? What 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 are you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you what what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, I would say I would not bet on it, yeah. right? I think there's a lot of that that's out of your control that I think it would be hard for me to confidently be like, oh, absolutely, do you want to reach thousands of people? Then do <laughs> one of these things and like spend a month and a half developing this thing. Um, that m- may end up being a very poor return <laughs> on your time. Um, it just so happened, again, that that I was in grad school. It was the summer. I was interested in doing this and I got, I just got like really invested in it. So I like, I had the time, I had the expertise, I had the skill and I had the opportunity. Right. And so it just sort of worked out that way. I, like I said, I haven't really touched much of that in a long time in terms of developing new stuff in that space. Um, like, like you mentioned, Noble, for example, that's something that um, came along recently. Someone was like, Hey, we saw your stuff on this other platform we're sort of this tech startup in Silicon Valley and we have these investors and we're sort of making these um, audio courses, sort of hour to hour audio courses on all sorts of stuff. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I would love to do this. I don't think that's reached nearly as large an audience, right? I think it just so happens that that app has not burrowed into as many people's <laughs> devices. Um, and so I think back and I go, well, I don't know. Was that, for me it was the right call because i think i might be able to repurpose some of that effort for other things that's often what i would suggest right it's if you're considering doing this kind of stuff make sure it is has a uh what is it there's this motivation idea of multi-finality is that what it is where the same effort serves multiple goals um the same thing with like writing a grant you're like if you're just writing a grant because you want money (laughs) your chances are actually very low right and so and it's a huge amount of effort. But if in writing that grant, you get to like read a literature that you're interested in, write up a, a preliminary draft that you might end up using in a paper later, now it becomes worth it, right? Because I go, the effort I put into this is going to serve these other goals. Um, and so I would say, if you're if you're considering doing this, especially with a high amount of effort and an uncertain probability of success, m- make it something that, serves multiple goals for you that you could sort of use that experience in a useful way later.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And that feels like it's probably in line with you know the time of life in which you were creating it, which you know, like, oh, here's my interest that I am actively teaching people about in an academic setting. I can re- I can use a lot of what I'm'm I'm doing for that. Uh, I'm sure, with plenty of modulation in in this uh, other domain. Uh, and then I also have, I've noticed for your for your YouTube channel, uh, uh, for example, your your video on social identity theory. It seems like it takes um, you know a video clip from your podcast interview mm-hmm. with uh, Jay Van Vabel. So clearly that's you know an example of, of of multifinality in the way that you're you're talking about. So I'm 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 interested to kind of connect the dots uh, on your on your content. How, how what is the of schematic of it look like i i, I don't know like how, how how does everything sort of like feed into it from your your core research interests and expertise uh to the the podcast interviews to the mm-hmm. the what is what is that how do you imagine all that how do you how do you think about all that
1: so some of it is uh teaching related so some of the more recent youtube stuff i've done was like well i can i can show this to my class like at the, at the very least I have a whole bunch of people who would need to watch this. <laughs> so
0: I have 300 so it, people I can require to I can watch require, this yeah, YouTube really video. Really jack up
1: those YouTube numbers, just by <laughs> instance. Um, but so there's that. So that was sort of like the impetus for it. Like, I am interested in creating this as a teaching tool. And then I often think, that, as happens in other domains too, where I go like, if I'm going to put this work in why not put a little more in and then more people can use it, right? Like it becomes a useful tool, right? So I can blast it out to a teaching of cyclists serve and say, hey, if you if you need some extra help in your class or you want to fill 15 minutes uh, without talking, you, you could play this, right? And it's sort of like a thoughtful and I think reasonably good looking uh, video that, that covers the ideas. And then also there's sort of a, um, you know, almost a moral value on, spreading that information widely right to be like these are important insights and so if i make them even more accessible and and able to be um seen by by many people let's do that too right so it starts with like i I need to do this for my teaching i learn more about the topic than i would maybe if i just like did the same lecture again in class right i kind of have to dig a little deeper and make sure that like every all the ducks are in a row if i'm going to put this out on the internet for my colleagues to be like Wait a second, <laughs> that's not right. That's not what social identity theory says. Um, whereas you sort of can subtly get a pass in class if you're. Well, not that's being why you interview
0: Jay kid. Van Babel for it, uh, because then him. if something gets. <laughs> that's why you interview Jay Van Babel for it, because if something gets fucked up, then you can be like, "Well, I don't know. Jay got it wrong. It's not. It's not my problem." You yeah, know?
1: yeah. I fa- he should have fact checked his own.
0: <laughs> yeah, so. he should really get his head on straight. You know. Yeah, um, that's really cool. So th- that is. So that's definitely something I wanted to ask you about, which makes a lot more sense in the context of the art school animation thing. But mm-hmm. the production quality on all of your material, um, but pr- particularly the the YouTube videos, is just uh, it's fantastic. They really are beautiful, and and uh, they they look, uh, uh, you know, it's it's re- it's it, they look really nice. Thank um, you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so yeah, I guess. Uh, Maybe so. The other thing is that your podcasts also have this insane level of of production quality. That's like this should be like This American Life or something <laughs> like that. Like, oh, well, that is very nice. First, first of all, your voice. I don't like. I don't know what it is, but you just sound like the perfect podcast uh, sort of host. Um, that's it's- so
1: funny. So. I, I had gotten that feedback before in my life where people were like oh you have such a great voice for radio and I, I got a little cocky about it and I was like oh well then perfect then I can do this stuff and then when I started actually making the podcast and listening back I was like w- why did everyone lie to me I my voice sounds miserable this is not I should never have gotten into this and yet you know many episodes in I, I people still nicely say stuff like that so appreciate it that that is the part of the puzzle that I don't really have control over but uh, I, I'm glad that it lends itself to that that medium
0: there is a huge asymmetry though between one's perception of, of the qualities of one's own voice and the the you know perception of other people's perception of, of that voice um, and uh, certainly uh, we all think our own voice sounds stupid in a way that other people evidently don't because they don't just like come up to us and be like, well, you know what? You s- you sound like, a, you know, you, s- you sound ridiculous. But uh, there also are like uh, y- y- some of the um, like Stephen Dubner for Freakonomics and um, uh, for This American Life, uh, Ira Glass. They both have kind of weird voices, like objectively, mm-hmm. they kind of have nasally kind of nerdy uh, you know, sort of voices and that sort of thing. So there is, there is something though about having a slight flaw to your, uh, uh, to, to however you speak that this, for some reason clicks really nicely with, uh, with with listeners for whatever reason.
1: I've I've seen folks who try to like. Um you know, use a a professional voiceover person to like, you know, I'll write the episode and then someone else reads it. And I go, I am so disengaged by this because it's just like, it just what, um, oh, is this a movie trailer like what what am i listening to like i want to hear the story from you like you know a story yeah. i want to hear that story from you and i want to feel like you're a person who's who's connecting with me which is why you know it, i've been a fan of this american life forever as i think probably anyone in the podcast space ought to be <laughs> um but i could never really lock into the stories that were like someone reading an essay they wrote and I always was way more checked in to the more like reporting conversational stuff. Um, and I think it's for that reason. I, and like same with books on tape. Like I I can't read like a highly produced book on tape, but I love it if the author, him or herself, is reading their work. Um, there's a clear difference that, that you can pick up of like, is this your story to tell? Or am I, are you just saying something that is in front of you?
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. Um,
1: So I, I, I guess... Uh, as someone
0: who does podcasting, uh, I'm curious to know uh, some of the details about your your process, especially the writing of your introductions. They're really they're really mm-hmm. high quality. Um, so I guess I just sort of want to hear more about for you when you uh, go from having a guest, like you know, sourcing a guest to producing the episode. What is your sort of pipeline in there? What is it? What does it look like? What is the what is the how is the sausage made?
1: Sure. It's funny you mentioned the intro. That was I was going to compliment you specifically on your intros because what I feel I lack is a conversational tone of the intro. I got like, I would love to just sort of like freewheel it and just sort of like let people know where I'm coming from and just sort of catch people up. And, and maybe it doesn't even have to be about the interview that they're about to hear, but it's just sort of like this... The story that sort of moves alongside the podcast um so i really love that that you're able to pull that off and to do so in a way that doesn't go too long like the trouble i have had in doing stuff like that is you record it and you're like nailed it and then you listen back you're like this is 10 (laughs) minutes and i basically say one thing
0: (laughs) Well, that would um, be the my, difference my, between you and me is that you would say one thing, whereas I think I say about zero things in, in that 10 minutes. But that's very kind of Maybe I
1: mean I've said 10 things, but only one of them is the thing I'd like to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, but so anyway, so yeah, so yeah. let's see. Um, in terms of guests, I kind of have two types of episodes that I'll do. Um, most of them are straight interviews, like the most of the episode is an interview with a person. Uh, some of them are more highly produced where there's like you know four to six interviews with people that are sort of stitched together with a narrative that runs through it and so i can i can talk about that process too if you're interested but the the straightforward interview type episodes that you mentioned will be sort of like thinking about who to talk to right i kind of have a running list of people whose work you know my podcast is fairly specific in its theme right so the science of attitudes and persuasion with some wiggle room right like the science of it the practice of it um how do we understand people's opinions and and how they change and so i try to think of people who fit that mold and there are plenty of people who i go oh i'd love to talk to that person but it doesn't really make sense for this show um And so as I read the literature, as I see papers pop up on Twitter, I'll be like, oh, look, (laughs) this person is doing cool stuff. I I maybe don't know them already, um, and this becomes an opportunity to get to know them, right? So step one is, like, will this person talk to me? Um, And I've been very lucky that much of the time uh, people are happy to to sit down and talk people um, are very so generous then,
0: with their time like i like shout out to people because yeah. uh, i really that's definitely something yeah no people are very generous with their time and i,
1: I think i think that's really that's really nice um totally yeah. um so you know I'll, I'll do some background research i'll read a paper or two i find it's a, a tricky balance to strike because I kind of want to play the part of a listener who doesn't know anything about this area, right? Because if I know too much, I sort of dive into the weeds and I feel like people can lose track of what's going on and the jargon comes out. And so I kind of don't want to know too much but I wanna know enough to be able to construct like an arc of questions that is makes sense and that I know that the person would have answers to them, right? Um, to, a lot of times you'll hear podcasts where the person clearly is like, oh, I heard you wrote a book on this. So like, I'm gonna kind of just brainstorm what that means to me and then ask you questions I'm curious about. Um, and you go, well, the person you're talking to may not actually know anything about that. But if, if you can sort of know in advance kind of where things are going, but with the willingness to sort of let it fly off the handle. <laughs> um, I, I just got some feedback. I, I talked to Dan Pink, the author, recently, and I had kind of an idea of where that was going to go, and it very quickly became something else, but but in a really great way. Um, and so be, be willing to sort of go like, I'm going to follow my curiosity, but I don't need this to, to look exactly the way that I planned for it to. So interview comes in, um, and then... I do, for whatever reason, I think on episode one I created like an introduction that was some sort of like creative tie-in that sort of like leads into the topic that we talk about. Um, And I sorry before we
0: before we dig into the intros, can I can I pause to ask you about interviews and that sort of stuff? Mm -hmm. So, um, are there interviewers? You know, in other podcasts or other media that you uh, that you look up to, that you sort of uh, yeah. admire. Do you have strategies that you use for your for your interviews? Like, what do you think goes into a good interview? Like, how how do you think about all this sort of stuff?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I there are lots of good interviews. It's sort of amazing that there are as many like good interview shows for as hard as interviewing is. <laughs> um, early, on, I, I've listened to um, what's his name, Jesse Thorne. I don't know if you know him. He he he. He uh, sort of is at the top of this, you know, <laughs> I'm going to call it podcasting empire, but it's the, the Maximum Fun Network, so a podcast network. Um, and he had a series on, uh, what is, I forget what it's called, but he had a series where he interviews people who do interviews. So it was like, the meta idea of that is funny and compelling. Um, and he's a guy who's been in public radio, has done an interview show on public radio for years. And but it's also just like kind of fun and interesting, and just talks to people like you know, um, uh, who am I? Ob- who's the obvious person everyone would say? NPR interviewer that I. Do you know what I'm talking about? What the heck is her name? Uh, I see a, an image of her in mind, <laughs> like rever- Terry Gross, revered interviewer. Um, so folks like her and people who've interviewed for you know NPR and, and all sorts of outlets. So. Uh, that is a, if, if you're interested in that, that, that series is very cool. Okay. Um, yeah. No, that's and, really, I, I uh, that's uh, definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Um, I, I can't point to anyone particularly where I'm like, wow, like you are on top of it. <laughs> uh, but there are lots of people who do it. Um, I will say that my approach is often like the thing I'm looking for is a bit of the story element of it. Um, which, which is why I actually really love the the work that you're doing because it's, you dive all in on the like, okay, your ideas are cool and you've done some cool work, but like, who are you? <laughs> what is your deal? Um, and so my the goal of the show is to talk about the ideas, but underlying it, I really want to get that human element out of it, right? So... Striking that balance is can be a little tricky. Um, and it's easier when I do the more produced versions because I can pull out the pieces that I want from people, like the unique pieces of the story where I go like, no one would have this insight but you about where this theory came from or where this research came from. So I am looking for that. Um, I also do some research on if it's a person who's been interviewed on stuff before, I'll go listen to those because I really don't want to do the same interview that already exists um and and yeah when it's just like someone who's clearly promoting a book and they've done the same interview 30 times i just i want so badly to find the questions that are compelling but they haven't answered before um so those are sort of the, the things i look for right stories and stuff that you wouldn't hear anywhere but my show um so that that's, I'm no pro, right? I've only been doing this for a little while, but my, my process that that's the process. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um,
0: intros, you're gonna, mm-hmm. you're gonna say a little about that.
1: Yeah. So it's a little frustrating that I started that as a thing because then I have to do it every time <laughs> to come up with like, okay, how do I, what's the hook on this one? And if you listen back, there are a couple where I really it in and there's, there's a pretty flimsy uh, intro but other times it lends itself to like something's going on in the world or or a personal experience that I've had right and and that's part of it too where you know that comes from sort of the stand up performance stuff where it's like well let me tell you about me and something funny that happened to me and it actually is related to the thing that we're going to hear about right and hopefully that's a story that you can connect with and be like oh i've done stuff like that too and like i'm curious now to know more about what the scientist says <laughs> about my my follies um And then some of my favorites are when I do an additional tiny interview (laughs) for the intro. Um, So when I talk to a political campaign manager about, you know, how do you run a political campaign? How do you persuade people to vote for a candidate? And I was able to find someone who was running for local office at that moment. Um, So someone who was running for judge in their county um, and who was like actively campaigning and trying to get his name out there. And so i was able to talk to him very briefly about like hey you're a person who's doing this like what are the challenges like i'm about to talk to the pro who like has done a million of these but what does it feel like to be the guy who's actually having to be in the middle of it um and when i talked to a film critic a friend of mine from art school actually who is a filmmaker now i talked to him about like as a filmmaker what do you think of film critics (laughs) like are they good or what's the do they are they a a good in the world are they an evil in the world um so those I really love is to get like a new voice, but that just takes a whole nother step <laughs> of planning. Um but when I can pull it off, I like to.
0: Yeah, no, that's the uh I uh, I find that impressive because you know, it's it's the opposite of what you were talking about. Whereas mine, I just sit down and I freestyle. Like, what am I been up to? Uh, let's do five minutes on that, and then uh, you know, like, just I just say, well, well, this is who the person is, and this is why I wanted to talk to them for a whole hour on the show and let everyone else hear mm-hmm. it. Uh, and it takes, you know, uh, if that segment is seven minutes, it takes about you know eight minutes to <laughs> <laughs> to put it together. <laughs> I'm impressed that you do the work. Um yeah. uh, it's very it's very cool. There
1: there are plenty of times though where it's like, I this just needs to get out and like I'm gonna, here's like a yeah. loose example of the thing we're gonna talk about and so I, I try also not to have those intros last much longer than a few minutes because yeah. I know uh, one of my podcast i've enjoyed for a long time is wtf with mark Marin, um and i have gotten into the habit of skipping to minute 12 because i know oh, that's yeah. usually when the interview actually starts so i i don't want to get into the habit of
0: there's a lot of those dudes long. they're always dudes yeah, who are like yeah, yeah. you know it like, goes, like it, you guys like, need to
1: hear what i'm saying <laughs> oh it
0: just it just goes
1: on and on
0: and on and on yeah yeah um yeah 100 percent oh um Yeah, and then uh, in terms of the the production and after the interview has taken place, that sort of stuff, what sort of things are you thinking about uh, in in putting together a
1: show? So it's pretty... The nice thing is it's pretty much just three parts. The intro, the interview, and then like a one to two minute outro, um, which doesn't change very much from episode to episode. Um, The bulk of the editing work is going back through the interview and cleaning some stuff up, right? So if... I'm coughing or if I don't really love the way my laugh sounds uh, at one point, drop that. (laughs) Um, Do folks the favor of dropping ums and uhs and long pauses and things like that. Or if there's sort of like a long stretch that doesn't actually make sense or it's sort of getting a little too in the weeds or I'll sort of find a way to drop that in a way that nobody notices. Um, So that is the bulk of the work on a normal episode is just sort of cleaning up that interview to make it more listenable. Doing a little bit of audio finessing and then slapping the intro and outro with the music on, um, and that's pretty much it. So luckily, I've I have like a pretty good template for a typical episode. The bigger ones, like the contact hypothesis one that I think you said you listened to, yeah, um, that just took too long because <laughs> that is, you know, I think probably four people I talked to for that episode. Um, plus a bunch of research and writing the script, me recording the script, so editing my own takes of the scripts, uh, editing out the pieces I want from other folks, putting the sound bed underneath all of that, um, and making it sound fairly seamless for an hour straight. Um, that that takes some time, but I really love it. Like that's the that's the creative technical challenge. Um, that really makes it fun to do, but it also makes it like such a possibility for complete failure. Right. Like I, I'm like, if I'm putting all this work in, like I need it to be okay enough to release into the world. Right. Cause if I put all this work in and people listen to it and they're like, that was kind of (laughs) garbage then I go, well, why did I do all that work for it? Um, so I, I do those kinds of episodes sparingly. Um, but they're fun to do when, when they're happening.
0: So you have like a, an actual job, you're a professor yeah. and you have, but yeah, you have uh, all of this cool content coming out on a, on a really regular basis.
1: So I also have a baby. This is, that's the other part yeah. that in and a cat. the
0: last year has, has made
1: this hard. Yeah.
0: Um, wow. Well, mazel tov, first of all. Um, <laughs> nice. but, uh, so tell me about your time management process with that, because that's definitely something I thought a lot about before I started this podcast, because it was right before I was beginning graduate school. And it's like, OK, so mm-hmm. like number one criterion of success in this podcast is like not having me fail graduate school because of it. Um, mm-hmm. So that was something I was really sensitive to and like thinking about how I want to do the show. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, as someone who has even way more going on than I do, like, how do you balance all that stuff, especially at the level of quality that you're trying to achieve.
1: Um before I do, did you say you started your show before grad school?
0: Like like the the month before. Like okay. like like I was starting graduate school in October and I think the I started, you know, like taping the first interviews in like August or something like that. Wow.
1: Yeah, I was just listening to the Susan Fisk one this morning and I was like what a bold move! I, like I knew you had like just started grad school, and you're like, I think I'm going to talk to Susan <laughs> Fisk. And I was like, Wow, kudos! <laughs> um, yeah, and and I mean, because where are you are, you you've completed two years. Like how how long how long has it been since you started? Two uh, years.
0: Two years, and I'm in my final year you're in your final year yeah in I england how that, how in, it works over there, yeah. in england it's it's three years which is ridiculous you can't do a good that is th- crazy. you can't do yeah. a good phd in 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 three years but the basic idea like in in theory what it is is that uh, a U.S. Ph.D., approximately five years for psychology. First two years are dicking around. Then the third, the th- <laughs> which is, I think, you exemplified. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, the, 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 the final three years, like, okay, I'm actually going to. Uh... And in theory, what oh. happens in, the, the, in, in England is that you come in with a much more fleshed out research proposal, which no one follows, but that's the concept. And then so you just cut straight to the, the three final years. Um, hmm. So in, in theory. Oh, that's, that's that's what happens. But yeah, I'm I'm on track wow. to 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 finish up this year.
1: Wow. N- nevertheless, to to be fairly new in in this world and talking to all the amazing people you've you've had on the show, that's good. I mean, I feel a little more secure doing this, having a job, right? So I have. I feel like I have some cachet behind me to be like, hey, I'm a legitimate person, um, and so like I feel a little yeah, I feel a little more encouraged to go for some folks who I'd really love to talk to, but I may not have tried you know years prior um, but but you went for it. so <laughs> Again, i i I feel
0: like uh, as a graduate student, I'm so much of an illegitimate person that I get like a level of of charity or generosity yeah. <laughs> um, because the way that i so i i I've always maintained the number one. Thing that will make my show good or not good is the cold email that I send, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the extent to which I can sell, you know, e.g., Susan Fisk on coming and talk to me. And if I shut up for most of the time, she'll just say interesting stuff, uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully the the show will be okay. Um, mm-hmm. um, but at any rate, uh, I try to sell them on the thing that it's like, well. You know, as an illegitimate person, as a graduate student, uh, I'll ask the kind of questions that may be um, of interest to other early career researchers. So I try to sell them on a community building uh, Mm -hmm. angle uh, on that. And uh, so this is
1: service work you can put on your CV. Exactly.
0: So I I try to play into that hand of illegitimacy, um, which Mm -hmm. I certainly am sensitive to.
1: But but now that you've had folks, you can say things like you know you you know I've talked to so and so and so and so and so and so and I'd really love to get your take on this and that, Um, and that. So I think the first handful of like real recognizable names that I had was then when I was able to start being like, hey, I've had these, I've talked to these people. um, As far as I know, they have not spread nasty rumors about me, (laughs) amongst others. And so like that's a little bit of a, a way to say like I'm not some creep who's just trying to talk to you right like this is for for some purpose uh, that others have bought on bought into before too so um but your question was about time management and yeah it is a challenge i will say that like i am pretty sensitive to these public engagement activities being secondary right like um my job the job that i really love and am committed to is as a researcher as someone who's mentoring students in doing research in attitudes and persuasion processes um and i i kind of like a lot of the you know i I like writing the papers even though they take a long time um so those things are going to come first right which is you know to our point earlier why i switched to doing this podcast every other week occasionally taking some breaks um if it really if it comes to this pinch point um I'm happy to sort of rebroadcast an old episode, right? So, like, it hasn't quite come to that yet um, because there are a handful of episodes that are simpler to put together, right, where it's just like I get to talk to someone I like for an hour, I do a quick intro, outro, put it together, and it doesn't take that much work, right? So that balances out the more... Uh, heavy investments it's also why like the youtube stuff is so sporadic right it's kind of when there's something i want to say and i feel like i have the time to do the editing and animation then i'll do it right but there is absolutely no regular schedule (laughs) on those things um and i haven't done any of really much of that like online course production stuff right because i have I have plenty of teaching I have to do <laughs> for my job. Um, and so that comes first. So there is a sense of like, what are the priorities and understanding that even though I value public engagement, it is not the job I'm paid to do. Um, and it's not the job that is sort of like the longstanding part of why I do what I do. Um, however, because my value on this public engagement stuff and the amount that I like it is strong enough, it's enough to kind of get me through. Cause you could very easily just be like, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Like I'll, I'll take a month off. And then after two months you go like, Oh, right. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going to do another one. And then a year later you go, I guess not. that's what happened with blogging. So I had a blog for a long time and it, it went very slowly from the first few weeks I had it. I was like three articles a week. (laughs) And then I was like, absolutely not. And then it was like one a week. And then it was like twice a month. And then it was when I feel like it. And now I go that blog ended three years ago because was that I know was that, that psychology today no this was uh, an independent one you can't find it now i'm having this weird web server trouble mm. where where my websites are gone but uh it was called social psych online or be a people expert i think is what i was calling it mm. and then the same thing happened with psych today where yeah. they reached out to me to set up a blog with them and i thought super cool i'll do it i think it was monthly is what we were doing and then slowly I was like, I can't can't stick to this. For whatever reason, writing I have a harder time sticking with as a regular thing um, because it's too easy to put off and be like, oh, I can just sort of like dash something off quick. But I, I'm also sensitive to the quality, I think is the problem, <laughs> because I go, I don't really want to do this if a weekly grind or a monthly grind is going to make what I'm writing like not interesting or useful or good. Um so I really, if, I can't believe these YouTubers who are like, I have three videos every week, and you're like, about what? <laughs> what could you possibly have to say and say it well that often? Um, but you know, the the algorithms really prize that kind of productivity. But for me, it's just not worth it, right? Like, yeah, maybe you're reaching more people, but if, I, if I'm not saying anything I get to stand behind or I feel I can stand behind, um, I'm not willing to do it.
0: So um, one thing I'd like to ask about is, you know, if if you're a graduate student or someone, you know, sort of early on, like academic background, interested in psychology, and also interested in how to have it make sense to other people and have other people engage in it. um, If you were starting off today, if you were in a position, you know, sort of like me in uh, in graduate school and and looking to do this stuff... uh, as a part of your career going forward, what's, what do you think are the good time investments now? What do you, I, I like, how, how would you begin to, to think about that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So my advice is usually to do it, right? If you're interested in doing it, just do it. There's no, there's nothing to stop you. Don't sign on. Don't let go. I'm, I'm going to do a weekly podcast. Well, <laughs> I don't mean I know that's what you did but I probably would not advise that <laughs> which is that's just a huge time commitment immediately right like if you if that's something you want to do maybe build up to it right but if you're just if you want to communicate social science broadly um find like a single shot opportunity to do it and don't really get fussy about where it is right like mm. don't adopt this like if it's not the atlantic it's not worth writing <laughs> right like even if it's a blog that 100 people see Right. I mean, y- you need that. In some ways, this digital age is such that it's hard to start doing something that will take time to get good at, because that stuff is now like the thing that defines you, right? So if you try to jump into deep too quick and you're not ready, it, it might be harder to get opportunities again later, right? If you're like, oh, I've written for this place, but like, it's not very good or, uh, you know, y- you need to sort of try and fail at a small scale. Um... And maybe that's like, given a talk at the library, like I've seen some people do that. Um, you could sort of like present, like here's some like interesting stuff from social psychology as like a public talk or a, a Zoom talk for, for a community organization, or like I said, writing for a smaller blog or making a YouTube video just to make it. Um, I feel like those are the ways to just be like, try like, what would it feel like to do the stuff you're doing in grad school? but for people who have no idea what that stuff is already. right? So like you just kind of need to build that skill first and then you can level up. Um, one place I would love to see more of this happen is TikTok. I am not some giant, I, I think I've opened the app three times on my phone, but I know that there's like a bubbling science communication community on TikTok that's doing some cool stuff of like using that medium to convey science in a compelling way, which is probably l- relatively low investments. Um, And, you know, it's like a a minute, right? Like make a one minute video about something uh, and just do that like a handful of times and try to build that up. So my advice would be to generally just like jump in, try it. Don't get too worked up about like reading a bunch of books about how to write science articles or trying to like master your skills first. Just like do it, but do it in a venue that you're not committed (laughs) for some like giant, Project is generally what I would say. Yeah, no, that
0: that that sounds really spot on. Definitely, the way it makes sense to me is that you start off with your opportunities that you have in front of you, whatever scale mm-hmm. that is. Usually, uh, in, you know, something something modest, and then. You you do little by little. Okay, like well, well, where am I going? How am I going to build on that? How am I going to do a little bit more than that? How what's okay? I tried this. I liked this about it. I didn't like uh, this about it. I'm going to have that be reflected in my next step of of what I aim for. Oh, I know a little bit more about the landscape of how one pitches uh, articles to, um, you know, magazines that sort of stuff. That was a big thing for me because I know the center of what I want to do is writing, and. Uh, you know, so okay. First uh, first opportunity to do that was Psychology Today blog, uh, which is a surprisingly common experience uh, for mm-hmm. lots of people who want to do psychology writing. Like for example, like Adam Grant, like that was his first um, mm-hmm. thing there. Scott Barry Kaufman came to it later, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Um, but lots of people have come up through this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's quite an illustrious list, but. Um, <laughs> But at any rate, uh, and then it took me, it took me like, I, I, I consider myself a very slow learner. Uh, and it took me years to land a a, um, a, a pitch in a magazine somewhere. Um, so just really just doing a, just terrible um,
1: starting off. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, so I, I like that a lot. Um, and one of my favorite things to do too is if you go on YouTube channels that you like And you can go look at all their videos and sort from oldest to newest and watch the oldest ones on the channel. They're often pretty bad. (laughs) And and that's a useful thing to know, right? Because you can look and be like, these people are writing books and they have like, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers on this thing. Like, I want to do that. And you go like, well, look at what they were doing 10 years ago because it looks a lot like what you're going to get yourself into. And they had no good reason to keep doing it but they just did. And now they're in this place, right? So it is a it is a numbers game. It is a sort of persistence game. Um, you, you can't expect to, you know, generate an enormous audience immediately um, if it's something that you've never done before. 100%. That's a,
0: that's a lot about how I've thought about what I'm trying to do is I look at the kind of people who are, executing what I eventually want to do at a high level. And then I say, well, when they were young and naive and had an exceptionally modest skill set uh, to, to do something with, what were the things that they were doing? Uh, and the the pro of that is you know, exactly what you say. There's a general principle of, well, you just, you got to build from somewhere. And then the con of that, though, is that the world is a different place when someone who's successful now is starting off. So you have to build mm-hmm. that into your model. And I think I underestimated that when I was sort of deciding uh, what I wanted to invest my time in. That is the one mm-hmm. thing that I think I, I, I would I would modulate a little bit um, if I could go back a couple years um, and, and think through some of that stuff a little bit. But that was definitely something for me was that I, I came into graduate school knowing that as a part of my career, whatever my sort of central job is, I know that I want uh, not only just public-facing stuff in general, but specifically writing books to be uh, a core element in, in what I do. And so the podcast, uh, you know, I I want to exist for its own sake and I, and I like doing these uh, and it's, but I also conceptualize it as an exercise in uh, audience building towards uh, that first book contract and, and and what that, what that looks like. And and I'm constantly trying to make sure that that's positioned to be, to be like that. And um, also, you know, a lot of the decisions that I made and how the show was going to be produced were optimizing for That's like, okay, I have a very small amount of time to dedicate to this um, if I want to get my other things done. How do I make decisions that weight, uh, you know, sort of the lightweight, you know, um, uh, stuff? Uh, so that's definitely something that I thought a lot about in, in, in doing these things. Totally. But... Um, yeah, I guess the, the last thing that I want to ask you here, and then I'll let you go, is uh, what, are, what are three books that have impacted you a lot um, or have changed the way you think about things?
1: I'm, I'm glad you also clarified that in the email, because I was listening, like I said, to old episodes, and this was a recurring question, and I was like, oh my God, I don't... I'm sitting in my car like, I can't think of anything <laughs> right now. So I had to do a little bit of thinking, but I, I came up with three that I think make sense in some ways. Um, the first is the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, just sort of backstory. As I was thinking of this question, I enjoyed reading. I read all the time, but I was hard pressed to think of like transformative books, like books that really like kind of changed things for me or, um, stuck with me in some sort of long lasting way. But Blink was this book that I read, you know, in that time in art school when I was trying to decide what I care about. Um, and it sort of was this kind of glimmer of social psychology Uh, in an accessible way and interesting curious insights from researchers who are doing this kind of work in academia and it was just sort of like another little reminder to me of like oh maybe that's something that i could do right and so i I could maybe trace some also of the push to to do what i'm doing now to reading that book at at an important time so Blink would be one. Um, the other, I have. Um, you see me looking off to the side because I actually wrote them down, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't forget. Um, the other one is uh, not really related to my professional journey, but is the book Mouse, M-A-U-S, which is a graphic novel. Um, and it was just uh, recommended to me, and I thought, oh, I'll check it out. And it was the first time I saw that medium be used to tell, like, a really important story right so are are you familiar with with the book i am i've never read it but i but i know of it yeah first yeah so it's like you know it's about the holocaust and that era in europe and you know different groups of people like polish jews are depicted as mice and um i think the germans are depicted as pigs and something like that so the sort of this sort of taking it into this artistic realm but using that as kind of a disarming way to tell like a really tragic and important story. And so from then I've just been so interested in, in, you know, maybe you extract from that, like an interest in using different media creatively for things that you don't normally think of them as being used for. Um, but the, but people have done such amazing like memoir work through graphic novel and comic illustration. Um, and uh, that, definitely, it's a world that I admire, but but could never imagine <laughs> contributing to. So, Mouse was an important one on that one. And then, and then the last one was the book Fast Food Nation, which uh, came out years ago by Eric Schlosser. I think I read it in high school. I had an uncle who was like, You know, you got to read this book called Fast Food Nation. And I thought, OK. And it's really just like a takedown of the fast food industry and how it's built on just like insane amounts of selfish (laughs) corrupt like we know that we're not selling a quality product but we're like gonna make sure kids are eating it um we are gonna try to make this food as cheaply as possible so we're gonna cut all these corners that make it so that what you get at mcdonald's or whatever is not maybe what you think it is and i think I, i highlight that as important because it, I think I can trace that to my interest in moral attitudes, right? So my research, a lot of my research now is on what happens when people moralize their attitudes. And Fast Food Nation is this book that really got me to see food from a moral perspective and sort of guided my own choices about um, food and, and engaging with it. And then sort of got me to think like, oh, well, these are attitudes that play out every day as people decide. What am I going to eat? What am I going to get when I go out to eat with friends and what does that mean about who I am, my identity, my sense of right and wrong? Um, And I think that was really the seed that got me thinking about like, oh yeah, morality is baked into a lot of the just sort of attitudes that don't have to be about morality, but for some people are, right? So like for some people, food is not a moral issue, um, but for others, it's a a deeply moral issue. And that distinction is an interesting one, I think, uh, theoretically. So those are my three. Blink, mouse, fast food nation eclectic (laughs) but 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 i think speak to to who i am
0: love it and and you mentioned something in there uh which is your research we never Mm -hmm. actually got around to talk to but uh (laughs) but no you're uh you've got a really fascinating paper from 2016 on making it moral merely labeling an attitude as moral increases its strength which uh i highly recommend because it's a very interesting finding and and, uh uh, i think you're doing a lot of cool stuff with it um so i'll link to that in the show notes but andy thank you thank you so much for taking the time to talk today Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun. That was my conversation with Andy Luttrell. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.